I do want to encourage you now to open your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. We've been at it for some time. And today we're looking at uh, one of my favorite stories uh, in all the Gospels, found anywhere in the Gospels. It's the story of Jesus healing a man who was blind from birth. And before we read it, I want to say something about my own increasing blindness. Uh, If you look up at the stage this morning, you will notice that I am wearing glasses. If you have been around Crossridge for a long time, then you will know that there was a day when I didn't need to wear glasses, um, or at least I thought I didn't need to wear glasses. Uh, I got my first pair of reading glasses uh, when I turned 40, and I distinctly remember an experience just shortly before that, about three months before that. I was uh, at an elders meeting at Willingdon Church, Uh, In Burnaby, we had about 40 elders at the time, and I guess I was distracted, but for whatever reason, I was looking around the room, and I was just making note and kind of proud of the fact that I was one of about three guys out of that group of 40 who did not wear glasses. And I thought, well, that's probably just, you know, genetics, or maybe it's my superior health regimen, all those carrots my parents told me to eat when I was a kid, whatever it was, I didn't need glasses, and I was quite proud of that. And then I went for an eye exam. And the optometrist said, well, you've probably needed glasses for a few years. You just haven't had your vision checked. And I remember getting those glasses, and the first time I opened my Bible after putting on the reading glasses, it was like the words were in 3D or something. I mean, everything was just kind of coming off the page. I could see it so clearly, and I wondered why I had waited so long to get my eyes checked. It's actually fitting that I'm preaching on this story this morning because uh, we had a Remembrance Celebrate event on Friday night, and uh, somewhere between then and now, I lost my Bible, my preaching Bible, which has a little bit larger print, so the one I have this morning, I think it has like size two font, so if I get lost somewhere, that's why. Um, In any case, I'm going to read John 9 for you, and I just want to say that the account of John 9... Jesus healing this man who was blind from birth functions like a bit of an eye exam. Uh, It did for those who saw what happened in the first century, and I think it does for us today. So I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety for you. It is a long chapter, uh, and this is what it says. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the Pharisees, or they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. 
So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So what is this chapter about? On the surface of it, that question is easy to answer. It's pretty straightforward. John chapter 9 is about the healing of a man who was born blind. But John chapter 9 is about more than that. Now, the Gospel of John, and you will know this, or many of you will know this, uh, contains seven signs that Jesus did. In chapter 2, Jesus changes water to wine. It's the first of his signs. In chapter 4, he heals a royal official's son. In chapter 5, he heals a man who has been paralyzed or a paralytic for 38 years. Uh, Chapter 6 contains two of Jesus' signs. First, he miraculously feeds the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish. And then he walks on water. Here in John 9, he heals this man who had been born blind. And then the last of his signs is in chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
John describes these miracles as signs. And that is to say that they point to a reality beyond just the miracle itself. So in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with just five loaves of bread. And then he explains that miracle with a lengthy discourse where he declares, I am the bread of life. So you have the miracle or the sign and then the explanation. Jesus doesn't just miraculously provide food. He, in fact, is the sustenance that we need. We actually see the opposite thing in John 8 and 9, the opposite order, at least. Now, we spent several weeks exploring John 8 together. John 8, it's in John 8 that Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And John 9 is now the explanation or the fleshing out of what it means to say that Jesus is the light of the world. And what John chapter 9 helps us understand is that the light of Jesus is so bright that it can open the eyes of those who were born blind. But it's also so bright that it can blind those who think they see. That's what John 9 is about. That the light of Jesus, the light of the world opens the eyes of the blind and simultaneously shuts the eyes of those who think they can see. So this passage then, as much as it demonstrates Jesus' power over physical blindness, it also teaches us something about spiritual blindness. And I want to unpack it by making four observations about sight. The first one is that sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Uh, Look again at verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And it's interesting that in a chapter that is all about seeing and not seeing, the very first thing it says is that Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, if you've read through the Gospels, then you know that Jesus was always doing stuff like this. So I don't think we should pass over it too quickly. Jesus was always noticing hurting people. We saw it with the story of the paralytic back in chapter 5 where it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? See, what most people saw for 38 years was just a lame beggar. What Jesus saw was someone who was in need of a healing touch. Jesus' miracles were demonstrations of his power and his authority. It's important to lay stress on that. His miracles show that he has authority over nature and authority over sickness and authority over the spiritual realm. We also need to remember that Jesus' miracles show his great compassion. So Matthew chapters 8 and 9 describe a series of Jesus' miracles. And Matthew provides this summary. He says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And then it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, this is what Jesus sees. Later, Matthew describes Jesus' arrival in Bethsaida like this. He says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. 
Just before Jesus feeds the the crowd of 4,000 in Matthew 15, we read this. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus notices hurting people. And here he sees a man who has been blind from birth. And as you read the passage, you get the impression that Jesus might have been the only one who ever really noticed this man. I mean, notice the contrast between what Jesus saw and what his disciples saw. Listen to verse 2 now. So verse 1 says, and he, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And then verse 2 says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So Jesus saw a man who was blind from birth. What the disciples saw was a theological question. Now, it's an interesting question. What was it that caused this man's blindness? That question, by the way, reveals a belief that was common at the time. I mean, that that you could actually sin while still in the womb. That's why they ask who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. But I think that question also reveals something about the disciples at this point. Now look, it's natural to ask theological questions about the cause of human suffering. Why did this happen? Or why does this keep happening? And we ought to ask those kinds of questions, but we ought to do so without losing sight of the individuals before us who are suffering. So the answer that Jesus gives is not just theological, but missiological. His answer in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. And then notice what he goes on to say in verse 4. We must work the works of God, or we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, Jesus is teaching his disciples something about what they're supposed to see and by extension, what we're supposed to see as well. So what do we see as we look out into our world? I mean, what do we see when we think about the increasing homelessness crisis? What do we see when we look at the increasing opioid crisis? Now, it's important to ask questions about causation and correlation and the like, but we need to do so without losing sight of the individuals who are suffering before us. You know, one of the current crises facing our culture is the transgender phenomenon. The spike in teens experiencing gender dysphoria, beginning a program of hormone blockers or transition surgery is staggering. Two books I recommend to people who are interested in that phenomenon are Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, and Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. My reaction to both of those books was similar. It was outrage at the proponents and the advocates who are propagating such confusion, but also profound sadness for those who are experiencing such confusion. The testimonies in Ryan Anderson's book will leave you heartbroken, and they should leave you heartbroken. One entry from that book from a young woman identified as Carrie who transitioned and then detransitioned reads like this. 
I wanted to make a video previously so that folks can see that I'm a real live person, but didn't out of fear of showing my face. But I think it's important when talking about these issues to really understand that women like us aren't just statistics, aren't just some dry data, some gatekeeping doctor might throw at you. We're real people. This is a real outcome of transition. Then she said, I'm a real live 22-year-old woman with a scarred chest and a broken voice and five o'clock shadow because I couldn't face the idea of growing up to be a woman. That's my reality. And what I'm trying to stress here is that like Jesus, we need to see the suffering that's so often right before us. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Second thing related to spiritual blindness is that sometimes we don't see because we don't want to see. Now, I mentioned at the the beginning that I started wearing reading glasses about the time that I turned 40. I started wearing glasses on a more permanent basis about the time that I turned 50. But I did have one other very short stint of wearing glasses uh, in my childhood years. So I think I was in grade three. And my mom had taken my older brother and I to the uh, eye doctor for, you know, kind of a routine eye exam. And my brother went first. He came out of that room and he said, uh, yeah, I've got to start wearing glasses now. And I looked up to my older brother. I mean, wanted to be just like him. So I went into that little room and I failed that eye exam intentionally. I mean, and you know how it is when you're a child, you tend to exaggerate things. I mean, I really failed that eye exam. And I got these thick black rimmed glasses with lenses the size of Coke bottles. I mean, I could barely see a thing. I didn't see because I didn't want to see. And I think that's actually what we we can observe in this passage as well, with three different groups in this passage that they don't see because they don't want to see. So the first group is the neighbors. So Jesus spits on the ground. He mixes that together with the mud. He makes this paste or, 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 or mud, and he applies it to the man's eyes. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man comes back seeing. Here's how the neighbors respond in verses 8 and 9. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I mean, that scene is almost comical, right? They're debating whether or not this is the man who used to sit and beg And he's standing there shouting, yes, it's me, I'm the man. And their theory is, well, maybe he just looks like him. So I just want to pause here for a minute and talk about what has been termed or what have been termed defeater beliefs. Now, you actually know what defeater beliefs are. You just may not have heard them described in those terms. The term defeater beliefs was coined by philosophers. A defeater belief is belief A, if true, means that belief B can't be true. They just, this belief defeats that belief. So you hold to this belief or this idea and anything you read or hear that runs contrary to that is automatically defeated. 
This belief cancels out or defeats this belief without any real engagement. There's a famous illustration of what these defeater beliefs look like in practice. I'm sure I've told it to you before, but the illustration runs along these lines. So what if you had a friend who was convinced that he was dead? I'm dead, he tells you. Well, you can see that he's not dead, and so you're concerned about your friend and his well-being. You want to help him, so you come up with an idea. You get the three best medical science textbooks. You show him inside of each of those three books that dead people do not bleed. He reads the books for himself. You ask him what medical science reveals about dead people and bleeding. You then say, have I proven to you beyond a shadow of a doubt from medical science that dead people don't bleed. Yes, I understand that, he says. Then you get him to hold out his hand. You cut it, and he begins to bleed. And you say, are you amazed? He says, yes, I'm amazed. Do you see what this proves? He says, yes, it proves dead people do bleed. That's how a defeater belief works, right? You hold to this, and because you hold to this, you simply cannot accept this. That's the neighbors. Now, they've seen this man every day. They're his neighbors. They've walked past him for years. He's the blind kid from next door. Now he stands before them, able to see, and the only explanation that their defeater beliefs will allow is, it can't be him, it just looks like him. Lots of people function like that. They can always come up with some alternate explanation for fulfilled prophecy or for answered prayer or a transformed life. They don't see because they don't want to see. The second group is the Pharisees. And they kind of take things up a notch in terms of their unbelief. This is what we see in verses 13 to 18. It says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind... Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So they had their own set of defeater beliefs. But what we really see with the Pharisees is a willful blindness. The truth is standing right before them in the person of this man who was formerly blind, had now been healed, but they refused to accept it. And you can see that it's a willful blindness on their part by the reasons they give for not believing. So in verse 16, it says, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So their reason for not believing in Jesus is that the man was healed on the Sabbath. Then in verse 18, we read this. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind or had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So their reason for not believing because they don't think the man was really blind or that he was really given his sight. That's where they were at that point. Then jump ahead to verse 29, a little bit later in the chapter. Here's what it says. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So their reason for not believing in Jesus is, look, we don't even know where he's from. So time out, and let me take you back to chapter 7. Another confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. Verse 27 of that chapter says this, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So in chapter 9, they don't believe in Jesus because they don't know where he comes from. In chapter 7, they don't believe in Jesus because they know where he comes from. See, if you are looking for a reason not to believe, you can always find one. Sometimes we don't see because we don't want to see. And the way Jesus performed this miracle was intentionally designed to not only heal the man's blindness, but also to reveal the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. I mean, Jesus could have healed this man with just a word. We've seen lots of instances where Jesus does just that. Go and you're made well. Take up your mat and walk. So why all the rigmarole here with the saliva and the mud and putting it on the man's eyes and sending him to the pool of Siloam? Well, I think the reason is found in verse 14 when it says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. See, in the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus spitting on the ground and stirring that spit with the dirt constituted work. And that was the only thing they could see. I mean, they don't see a man healed of his blindness They don't rejoice in something that has not occurred since the foundation or since the beginning of the world. That's how blind they were. But I think there's a third group that fits into that category of those who don't want to see. And that is the man's parents. Uh, Listen to verses 18 to 24 now. And here it says, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, well, we know it's our son. We know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And then it says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Now, maybe this one doesn't seem as hostile, but it is every bit as damning. The parents know the truth. They know this is their son. They know he's been healed of his blindness. They know who he has said healed him but they're not about to wade into any of this controversy, right? They don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. He's of age, ask him. And there are lots of people who live like this. I mean, they know the truth, they've seen it, but they don't want to acknowledge the truth before anyone else. If expressing faith in Jesus is going to get them into any kind of trouble, if there are going to be any social costs to it, if it's going to make them unpopular at school, make the neighbors think that they're weird, cost them a promotion at work, 
They'd rather just not acknowledge it. They see the truth, but they don't want to believe it because it will have implications for their lives. So sometimes we don't see because we don't want to see. It's the third thing we discover here about spiritual blindness, namely that sometimes we see, but we need some clarification. And this is actually what we see with the blind man. His physical sight was restored the moment he washed in the pool of Siloam. But notice that his spiritual sight comes to him gradually. When he is first asked, how were your eyes open? He answers like this in verse 11. He says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. When he's first interrogated by the Pharisees, we read this in verse 17. So they asked, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. So he's gone from saying, well, it's a, it's, he's a man to he's a prophet. And then we go to this exchange in verses 24 and 25 where it says, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. That has to be one of the greatest comebacks of all time, right? They're like, look, we know he's a sinner. And he just falls back on his simple testimony. I was blind and now I see. How do you explain it? Now, lots of commentators actually think this man was probably still a teenager at this time. That's why the parents had to be brought in. Well, whether that's the case or not, he shows remarkable composure under pressure. Just as the Pharisees start to lose their composure, he seems to become more resolute in his convictions about Jesus. Listen again to verses 26 to 34. And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. That's that's an amazing story. I mean, you've got this room full of learned scholars... And they cannot touch this man's simple testimony or story. I was once blind and now I see. But as good as all of that is, he still doesn't quite have the full picture yet. And gaining your spiritual sight is often like that. The Gospel of Mark records the story of Jesus healing a different blind man. Mark 8 it says, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, that story in the Gospel of Mark is actually sandwiched between two stories 
of people coming to understand who Jesus is. And Jesus was using that physical healing, that restoration of physical sight to teach a spiritual lesson about gaining our spiritual sight. And I think we see something similar here. This man's understanding of who Jesus is comes gradually. He needs some clarification. That's why Jesus is going to search him out or seek him out. And this is often the case. Sometimes we just need someone to point out the truth to us or actually walk us across the finish line. I love the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch found in the book of Acts. Here's how that that account reads. It says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading, he just happened to be reading this, was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Well, he's reading from Isaiah 53. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. See, that eunuch was ready to believe. He just needed some clarification. And some of you might be Right there. I mean, you've been coming here for a while. There's something that draws you. You hear the songs. You think about the words. You like the people you've met. The messages resonate with something in you. You just haven't quite put it all together. You haven't quite come to that place where you have placed your full trust in Jesus. And today might be the day for you to do that. You need to do that. This is what we see with the blind man. This takes us to the final truth we see here, which is that once we see it, we can't unsee it. Now, you've no doubt had an experience like that, where once you actually see something, you just can't stop seeing it. Someone points out something to you you never noticed before, and now you can't unsee it. So I had that experience really deep here, but I had that experience recently with Tostitos or with the Tostitos logo. Now, listen, I have consumed my fair share of nachos over the years, but I had never noticed that in the logo are two stick figures eating chips and salsa. I mean, that's what they're doing, those two T's. Someone pointed that out to me and I was like, wow, never saw that before. Now I can't unsee it. And that is the same thing that happens with this man. Notice his response. So notice what happens. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? 
He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Right? He needs clarification. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. I mean, that's the only appropriate response. Once we come to that place of seeing and knowing that Jesus is who he says he is. So the man's eyes have been opened, right? His physical eyes were opened. Now his spiritual eyes have been opened. He's gone from thinking Jesus was a man to thinking he was a prophet to knowing that he is the son of God. And when we come to that place, we can do nothing but what he did. Offer ourselves in worship. Now, listen, I would love to to just end the message right there. We could all go home happy, right? Man's cured of his physical blindness. He's cured of his spiritual blindness. But the chapter actually ends like this, verses 39 to 41. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, the problem for the Pharisees is that they did not know that they were blind. They thought they had 20-20 vision. You can hear it all through the chapter. They say, We know this man's a sinner. We know this We know he can't be from God. We know, we know, we know. And I would just say that being blind and not knowing it is the worst condition of all. So I began by telling you about my own experience with glasses. As long as I went around for a couple of years, proud of the fact I didn't need glasses like most people my age, that was the the worst place to be in what I didn't realize was that I was the one with faulty vision. I think this story in John 9 helps us understand what it really means to see. Are we spiritually blind like the Pharisees or have our eyes been opened to Jesus like the blind man? Charles Spurgeon said this. He he took a popular expression and added to it. He said, the same sun which melts the wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. So let's make sure we make the right response. That the light of Jesus does not cause our eyes to be shut, but causes them to be wide open. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power. We thank you that you can not only open physical eyes, but you by your spirit can open our spiritual eyes to the reality that's all around us, to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Lord, I pray for anyone who might be here today who needs that touch from you, who needs their eyes opened to see you as you are. I pray you would do that work and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.